Sharp, eh? Bring him to an early grave, Sharp had thought sourly. Slingsby pointed up to the telegraph station. Mr. Illiff and I saw men up there, Sharp, and one was wearing a blue uniform. Sharp had noticed the men and their horses fifteen minutes earlier, and he'd been wondering what the strangers were doing on the hilltop. For officially the telegraph station had been abandoned. The French had already cut the chain further north, and the British had retreated away from these hills. Somehow this station had not been destroyed, and Sharp's company had been given the job of burning it. Could it be a Frenchman? Stingsby asked. He sounded eager, as if he wanted to charge uphill. Doesn't matter if it is a bloody crapo, Sharp said, sourly. There's more of us than there are of them. Sergeant Harper, march on. It took another half hour to reach the hilltop. The barn was evidently a shrine, for a chipped statue of the Virgin Mary was mounted in a niche above its door. The telegraph tower was deserted. From one of its tethered signal ropes hung a white cloth, and Sharp wondered if the strangers on the hilltop had raised the makeshift flag as a signal. Those strangers, a dozen civilians, were standing beside the shrine's door, and with them was a Portuguese infantry officer. His blue coat faded to a colour very close to the French blue. It was the officer who strode forward to meet Sharp. I am Major Ferreira, he said, in good English. And you are? Captain Sharp. And Captain Slingsby. Lieutenant Slingsby had insisted on accompanying Sharp to meet the Portuguese officer. I command here, Sharp said, laconically. And your purpose, Captain? Ferreira demanded. He was a tall man, lean and dark, with a carefully trimmed moustache. Sharp detected an uneasiness in the Portuguese major that Ferreira attempted to cover with a brusque manner. We're ordered to burn the telegraph. Ferreira smiled unconvincingly. I shall do it for you, Captain. It will be my pleasure. I carry out my own orders, sir, Sharp said. If you insist, Ferreira said, but do it quickly. Quickly, sir, Slingsby intervened enthusiastically. No point in waiting. He turned on Harper. Sergeant Harper, quick, man, quick, fire it up. Wait, Sharp snarled, making Slingsby blink at the harshness of his tone. Sharp climbed the ladder to the mast's platform that stood fifteen feet above the hilltop. The station to the north had already been destroyed, but looking south, Sharp could just see the next tower somewhere beyond the river Crease, and still behind British lines. It would not be behind the lines for long, he thought. Marshal Massena's army was flooding into central Portugal, and the British would be retreating to their newly built defensive lines at Torres Vedras. The plan was to retreat to the new fortifications, let the French come, then watch them starve. And to help them starve, the British and Portuguese were leaving them nothing. Every storehouse was being emptied, crops were being burnt in their fields, Windmills were being destroyed, and wells made foul with carcasses. The inhabitants of every town and village in central Portugal were being evicted, ordered to go either behind the lines of Torres Vedras, or else up into the high hills where the French would be reluctant to follow. Sharp untied one of the signal ropes and pulled down the white flag that turned out to be a big handkerchief of fine linen, with the initials P.A.F. embroidered in blue into one corner. Yours, Major? Sharp asked. No, Ferreira called back. Mine, then, Sharp said, and pocketed the handkerchief.
He saw the anger on Ferreira's face and was amused by it. Sharp saw a small mist of grey-white powder smoke far off to the southeast. He pulled out his telescope, the precious glass that had been given to him by Sir Arthur Wellesley, now Lord Wellington, and he rested it on the balustrade and then knelt and stared towards the smoke. He could see little, but he reckoned he was watching the British rearguard in action. He could just hear the soft thump of the far-off guns. He swept the glass north, over a hard country of hills, rocks, and barren pasture, and there was nothing there, nothing at all, until suddenly he saw them. Cavalry. French cavalry. Dragoons in their green coats. They were at least a mile away, in a valley, but coming towards the telegraph station. Forty? Sixty men, perhaps. We've a company, Sergeant, Sharp called down to Harper. At least a squadron of green bastards. About a mile away, but they could be here in a few minutes. He collapsed the telescope and went down the ladder and nodded at the Irish sergeant. Spark it off, he said. The turpentine-soaked straw blazed bright and high, and the big timbers of the scaffold caught the flame. Sharp's company gave a small cheer. Sharp walked to the eastern edge of the small hilltop, but, denied the height of the platform, he could no longer see the dragoons. Lieutenant Slingsby joined him. I don't wish to make anything of it, he said in a low tone, but you spoke very harshly to me just now, Sharp, very harshly indeed. I don't resent it for myself, but it serves the men ill. It diminishes their respect for the King's Commission. You think men respect the King's Commission? Sharp asked. Naturally, Slingsby sounded shocked at the question. I didn't, Sharp said. I wondered if he smelt rum on Slingsby's breath. When I marched in the ranks... I thought most jack-puddings were overpaid bastards. Sharp, Slingsby expostulated, but whatever he was about to say dried on his tongue, for he saw the dragoons appear on the lower slope. Slingsby said instantly, Be an honour to lead the men down the hill, Sharp. It might be a bloody honour, Sharp said, but it would still be bloody suicide. If we're going to fight the bastards, he went on, then I'd rather be on a hilltop than scattered halfway down a slope. He turned to look at the shrine. There were two small shuttered windows on the wall facing him, and he reckoned they would make good loopholes if he did have to defend the hilltop. How long till sunset? Ten minutes less than three hours, Slingsby said instantly. Sharp grunted. If the dragoons attacked, they could easily hold them off till dusk, and no dragoon would linger in hostile country after nightfall for fear of the partisans. Stay here, he ordered Slingsby. Watch them, but don't do anything without asking me. He strode towards the shrine. To his surprise, his path was barred by Major Ferreira and one of the civilians. The door is locked, Captain, the Portuguese officer said. Your work is done here and you should leave now. The civilian standing with Ferreira had taken off his coat and rolled up his shirt sleeves to reveal massive arms, both tattooed with fouled anchors. The man was built like a prize fighter and there was an unmistakable message in his scarred, brutish face. He looked disappointed when Sharp stepped a pace backwards. Sharp raised his voice. Sergeant Harper! The big Irishman appeared round the side of the shrine and saw the confrontation. The big man, broader and taller than Harper, who was one of the strongest men in the army, had his fists clenched. Harper let the volley gun slip from his shoulder. It was a weapon intended to be used from the deck of a ship, 
to clear enemy marksmen from their fighting tops. Seven half-inch barrels were clustered together, fired by a single flintlock. And at sea the gun had proved too powerful, as often as not breaking the shoulder of the man who fired it. But Patrick Harper was big enough to make the seven-barreled gun look small, and now he casually pointed it at the vast brute who blocked Sharp's path. You have trouble, sir? Harper asked, innocently. Ferreira looked alarmed, as well he might. Harper's appearance had prompted some of the other civilians to draw pistols, and the hillside was suddenly loud as flints were clicked back. Major Ferreira snapped at them to lower their guns. None obeyed, until the big man, the bare-fisted brute, snarled at them, and then they hurriedly holstered their weapons and looked scared of the big man's disapproval. He was a street fighter. That much was obvious from the broken nose and the scars on his forehead and cheeks. But he was also wealthy, for his breeches cut from the best broadcloth, and his gold tassel boots were made from soft, expensive leather. He looked to be around forty years old, in the prime of life. The man glanced at Harper, evidently judging the Irishman as a possible opponent. Then, unexpectedly, smiled. What is in the shrine? The big man stepped towards Sharp. Is my property. His English was heavily accented. And who are you? Sharp demanded. My name is Ferragus. Your work is done here, Captain. The tower is no more, so you may go. Sharp stepped back out of the huge man's shadow, sideways to get around him and then went to the shrine and heard the distinctive sound of the volley guns ratchet scraping as Harper cocked it.